What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Jeannie, head of creative advice media, Asia Pacific and drag queen superstar all the way from Singapore. Jeannie, welcome. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. We recorded a chat about a year ago and then you had a few changes. We talked about changes and changes that might come. Then you had changes and then we decided that we needed to not publish that interview. And so we're back. We're back, and that is outdated material because that's how <laughs> that is how life happens. Is everything just keeps changing very quickly? It's chaotic. Yeah, and and as a performer, I guess you're aware of when your material uh, needs to be new, and it probably needs to be new quite often. Today, we're going to talk about becoming who you are, despite the industry, and because of it. Jean's got a really interesting story. It starts right near Yosemite Park. We're going to talk about personal history, decisions within the industry about what roles to take, where to live, uh, and also outside of the industry. And I, I think it's, it's a lot, Jeannie's got a lot of really interesting stories. So tell us about life near Yosemite National Park. All right. So Yosemite is where I grew up. My parents moved us there when I was about six. So that place, I mean, it's beautiful. Anyone I tell that I'm from Yosemite, I grew up in Yosemite, anybody who I tell about that is like, oh, that must be so amazing. It's so magical, so beautiful. And it was. But for me, it's it's like these small towns, It's they're unimaginably conservative. And anyone who's lived in a small town or grew up can imagine what that environment is like. Um, this is a kind of place that has more grocery stores I mean, more churches than grocery stores. It's that's, that's the kind of like environment we're in. So it's quite conservative. A small town, like all your friends, any friends you have will live 45 minutes away. So it's quite isolating and, and quite, a, quite a strange place to grow up. It's like nothing like something you see on TV. So it's a strange place, but that's kind of where I got my start and um, where I became, I don't know, I started like being the weird creative kid I was. Mm-hmm. Why did your family move to Yosemite or to near Yosemite? Yeah, we. Um, so my uncle and aunt owned a lot of. They they they, um, they were running like fast food restaurants, and my parents were like, "Okay, we will buy one as well." So they bought a franchise of a fast food restaurant, and that location happened to be like four hours away from the Bay Area, uh, and so that was near Yosemite. It's like this. It's called Oakhurst. It's a small town. It is basically a really really big pit stop outside of Yosemite. It's one of those kind of places. And um, mm-hmm. that's where we lived. So we ran that Burger King. For, and I worked there when I was nine, from the time I was nine years old as a cashier. Mm-hmm. Did you spend much time in Yosemite in, in the park itself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, whenever family came from abroad or family, like we have a bunch of family in Hong Kong. So whenever family came from Hong Kong or relatives from India, wherever, we would take them to to the snow and the funniest the, to the park and usually to see the snow or to see the trees, whatever. The funniest part about it was that none of our family is very like naturally outdoorsy at all. Like not at all. So we would, <laughs> we would go and bring, we'd bring like home cooked Indian food wrapped in foil and in like, like yellow stained Tupperware, which any brown person who hears me refer to that knows exactly what I'm talking about. And we would take that, we would take that food to the park and like find a place to eat it. And that's what would, that's what would happen. That was our experience of like, of Yosemite. It's like these, I don't know. It's just very funny. Did you wander around the park much? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, usually it was like, okay, we're hanging out the doors and like looking at whatever giant trees or whatever. 
And I was always also, I was always dying to go skiing because I love skiing and I never dressed, I never dressed properly for it. And there was never enough time to do it. So I was always kind of, those family trips were always a little bit irritating because we'd go and have the Indian food and like not ski. So I was like, oh, what the fuck is this? <laughs> we live in these mm. mountains and we're not skiing. Mm. I mean, it's, it is a really beautiful part of the world. It's, it's incredible. Did it, does it echo in you or was it more of like a utilitarian vibe that the family, it sounds like that's what the family was going for. It's like, we're supposed to do this, let's get some food, let's go do it, then we'll come home. Or is there something about your time at, in, in Yosemite that has stuck with you? Yeah, I mean, my fa- I mean, we're not, okay, no one in the family is outdoorsy, but everyone appreciates looking out at nature, but it'll be from the comfort of like a car passenger seat, you know? So my, like my parents love the natural scenery. And for me, I was always trying to escape that environment. But later in life, now I'm like, oh, there is something really nice about quietness. And um, despite being like the kind of person who needed to run away to the most densely populated area possible just to like mm-hmm. move away from my past or move away from that like this isolating feeling later on in life like now I'm like oh when I want to go on holiday I want to go to some quiet like natural big place that makes me feel tiny mm. and then tell us a little bit about the first couple of years of you working in this Burger King what did you learn about people what did you learn about yourself how, how like was it every day was it once a week that was like it was every day during the summer and uh and then it was like you know weekends or after after school sometimes during the week but it was i started when i was nine right so people who came in would look would look at me and not believe that i was actually taking the order like they thought it was a mis- they, would, I, they, they thought it was some kind of prank or some someone i don't know <laughs> someone was like some babysitter had brought their ward to the right. They didn't know what was going on. And I was like, I was like, a, I'm, a, I'm good at math. I'm good at numbers. Right. Just, just, that was what I always was. And so I would be like pressing these buttons, like a mad person, like crazy fast, like very, very, very fast. Um, this is before we had iPads and phones and everything, but I was like very, very, you know, easy with technology and very fast about pressing the whole cash register. So people would just, these parents would just like look and be like, they would, I was asked at least like three times a day. Um, can my kid, work here too and i was like mm-hmm. uh i don't think so i think it's only i think it's illegal except that i my parents own this <laughs> restaurant so i'm allowed to work here i think it was illegal except for for me because i'm a blood relative which yeah, is like some like, loophole <laughs> we would have to adopt your child yes yes and i said it so flatly too i remember saying yeah. it like no you cannot i was like nine i was like super sarcastic already yeah, please sign this form for adoption and, uh, yeah. and give your child the opportunity to earn three dollars an hour. Exactly, exactly. It was, it was such a weird thing. But then, you know, growing up, I, I think the interesting things I learned about people were what it means when you're. I mean, like, okay, they see me. These kids, it's a small town. Like, it's like you see the same people everywhere: the grocery store, mm-hmm. the, the whatever, the movie theater, the bowling alley. God, the bowling alley. You'd see everybody everywhere, right? At school, whatever. So this small town, this one Burger King, like I'd be behind the counter and people knew me because I was there. People knew me because my family owned that restaurant. Like it's like one franchise, but people knew me, you know? So what was funny about it is that like how different your identity is when you're behind the counter or in this kind of role. And then back in school, it's like a different identity. It's a completely, completely different world, but everyone else around like knows these two people. But I don't know, sometimes I feel like 
when we retail is such an interesting thing or like working this kind of like people facing jobs are interesting because those are normal people too. Like we, (laughs) we are like, we are also normal people, but somehow people don't think you're a normal person anymore when you're behind the counter or at the other end of a customer service line or, um, you know what I mean? Like there's something dehumanizing about that. Not, and not always in a horrible way, but in sometimes in a bad way. Yeah, there is. I just, I mean, I see it especially in the US. It's not just in the US. It's, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. But yeah, like retail is quite, can be quite a dehumanizing experience. I mean, sometimes the people serving you invite <laughs> the feeling that they've been yeah. dehumanized and they, yes. and they kind of dehum, dehumanize you. You know, you're standing there mm-hmm. waiting, like trying to work out what to order and they're barking stuff at you. I mean, I worked in, uh, in retail and I worked in a, a restaurant bar. So I've been on the other, on the other end of it and I try to treat people decently, but I feel like a lot of people who are harsh or who are snappy at people in retail or in uh, fast, casual food dining situations, maybe they haven't worked on the other side of it. Yeah, for sure. I I think it I think it's one of those experiences that if, if you haven't had that experience, then it shows. It like tells very very easily in your personality. However, I will admit that like despite having worked in many service environments, like multiple types of restaurants, from Burger King to like four star, four diamond, whatever measurement system type restaurant, which I worked in those as well. I I go Karen sometimes. Like I become Karen. Sometimes when, when I like, I let my worst side of me show sometimes when things are not going well. And then I try to remind myself, like, don't be that person. Like you're mad about this, whatever thing, but don't be that person. And it's like, I don't know, maybe I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if you haven't had that experience. Like even when you lose your temper, if you can get yourself back there. That's how I don't like it. I, I don't, I, I don't have much of an in-between. So usually I'm relatively quiet and uh, grew up around a little bit of uh, fight and flight <laughs> situations. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's something in me and I, I just don't like being there. And once I've, once I've flipped, it's not that I'm swinging punches, but uh, yeah, this other person will come out, but it's, it's really rare. And someone would have to be quite uh, aggressive and just completely out of place and misjudge my energy <laughs> for me to turn mm-hmm. that stuff on. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a, and I don't really do it to an employee, but it could be someone, you know, I've had people say weird things to my family, for example, mm. in, a, in, a res- in a restaurant, and that's, that was not going to end well for them. Uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Now, you mentioned earlier, I like how flippant you are, you know, that you're kind of good at math and numbers because you obviously have a pretty good brain from my memory from the last time we talked. Let's talk a little bit about high school into college. I'm kind of curious about how you see yourself now and your experience in high school, especially intellectually, and then what that led you to think about studying in college. Okay. So in high school and leading into high school, I was like, I guess like junior high, I was, didn't try elementary school. I didn't try. I got in trouble a lot growing up with the school. Like I got in trouble with the school a lot. They would send home notes about me totally. Like, for example, my my family took me to India for a month and you can do that like in elementary school and take a whole month of work with you, like home study or whatever. Right. And I would just not do it. And I'd get back after a month and the teachers wouldn't know, didn't know what to say because it's a whole month of work that didn't get done. Like they don't even know how to start that conversation. So I was like, I was like bad kid in school in undergrad, I mean, um, in elementary school and junior high school. And then whatever happened and I was like, oh, I'm really good at math. And uh, suddenly I just like cared and it was very competitive, like in junior high. And in high school, I was super competitive too. Um, and I was one of those like international baccalaureate kids, you know, who was like taking all of those classes, like all at the same time, the full program, the extra coursework in the morning. 
and it was it was interesting it was easier it was easy but it was interesting and it was competitive and i felt like this is somehow this is somehow a way to be i don't know to feel special more mm-hmm. and it was like somehow the the group of people i was with in those classes was there was there was some of the other interesting weird people in those classes like any the out of the 1200 kids in that school that high school there's maybe 10 of us who are liberal minded, like progressive. And all 10 of us are in this IB program in the same kind of, you know, same kind of work and same kind of like class schedules and same kind of like atmosphere. Right. So it just made sense. And, and the ones, the ones of us who were those kind of weirdos, the smart weirdos, I guess we would say, like, that's like how I would describe our group. It was me and like nine girls and we were all just strange people, but smart. We worked hard mm-hmm. and we were progressive and we kept our views to ourselves. Like we didn't say much about what we thought because of how conservative that town was. So mm-hmm. that was a really strange experience. But then going into college, I, I went to Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley in California in state, you know, half the price of any of the other, uh, any of the other schools. <laughs> but I was like, you know, my family of course was like, you should apply to this and this and this and that school, all the dream schools. I got waitlisted at Harvard, uh, but I tore up that card. There's a card you're supposed to fill out that says, I will wait on the, I will remain on the wait list. And I just tore it up because I was like, nope, I don't want to be, I don't want to get my hopes up for this when I know that it's twice the cost of Berkeley mm-hmm. and Berkeley is just as good. And it's much more interesting as a, as a place I can imagine. I'd never been to like Cambridge or wherever, but I was like, Berkeley is cool. It's like different. It's diverse. It's like all kinds of fun stuff happening. And I just liked it more. So I was like, I'm not going to even entertain this idea, even though I've, of course, the idea of Harvard is such an interesting and amazing thing, you know, to, it's just a, one of those dreams that everyone has. Um, mm-hmm. And so I didn't do that, but Berkeley was the right place for me. It was wild. It was, there's so many different kinds of characters and yeah. such wildly, wildly different lives are happening there. What, were, what did you study? Okay, I went in as pre-med and then I was like, or chemistry was just like, oh, what is this class? I, who, how did I even... How did I choose this? This is horrible. I hated chemistry. I hated it so much. I was like, and it wasn't because I was bad at it. I was terrible at it, but there was nothing interesting about it. So I switched to mass communications, which I know is, I didn't know this then, but since memes now show you things that people all know, but you didn't realize, you know, because like it's a common truth, but I didn't realize mass communications was like a party girl major. I didn't know that. Like, I didn't realize that. Now I know this because now you see memes that make fun of mass communications, whatever, media studies or whatever. And now I know. But I chose it because, and, and there's nothing wrong with being a party girl, and I probably well, I was for sure. But I chose mass communications because if you looked at the course listings, it was like 10 different departments in one. And I was like, okay, I won't get bored. There's journalism, there's film, there's English, there's business, there's all kinds of different things in here. And so it'll just be like, you know, pick the different ones that are interesting and until you hit the number you're supposed to hit and they're done. Even though I worked yeah. my ass off to get to a good school, once I was there, I was like, I don't know, like, la, 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 let's just have and just enjoy whatever classes you enjoy. Okay. So let's pause here. So usually when I do interviews, I don't go to, like, I don't spend a lot of time going through the resume, the CV, the history. I like to talk about the topics and the ideas, but I wanted to give people this context because you've made a lot of decisions since this very, since that time, uh, obviously at Berkeley that have been trying and then liberating and then trying and then liberating. And so 
I just want you to reflect back to that person in that course, in that, in, in that degree. Mm-hmm. And we think about the topic that we're trying to talk about, which is becoming who you are, you know, despite the industry and because of it. Mm-hmm. Did you have a good, who were you then? Did you have a sense of who you were? Were you, were you still working it out? Was it something you even thought about? Mm-mm. Okay. Yeah. So, so in high school, I mean, I knew I was gay when I was young, right? Like normal, the same age that anyone knows like when they hit puberty or whatever, and the same age that anyone knows who they like. And I hid it from everybody, but only verbally. Like I just didn't admit it, but I just was, I just was myself because there was no way to hide that. And I couldn't fathom it somehow. I think there are a lot of people who choose to cope with that kind of situation by masking it or pretending in some other way. But I wore what I wanted. I did what I wanted. Like in high school, I wore, you know, huge platform shoes and like Hello Kitty messenger bag and like weird hair gel, like metallic green hair, all kinds of stuff. I would just wear whatever I wanted. I would dress up, like I would dress up in school and be a weird person. And I, and I loved it. And I got lots of attention for it, negative and positive, but I did it and it was fun and it was, it was who I was. I just didn't say it out loud. Like there were times where I would go to school dressed one way and then change into something else at school and then change back before I got home. So that kind of was in high school. Then in college, it was like I had forgotten that, I don't know, I'd for, I, going to Berkeley means that my family in the Bay Area was still there nearby. And all these Indian kids I knew in Berkeley knew people who knew people who knew people. So I was like, okay, I guess I can't really be fully myself and, and open about it yet. But of course, everyone could see it and I wasn't hiding it. I didn't lie about it. I just didn't confirm it. And that was like mm-hmm. in my head. I was like, I'm just not going to confirm it because they're paying for my school. You don't know what's going to happen. If you say all of a sudden, if you admit it out loud, I am gay, you don't know what's going to happen. Like there's no, there's no guarantee that they will say, okay, we're, even if the worst case scenario, you don't even know what the worst case will be. The worst case could be, no, you're not. We're not paying for anything anymore. You're done. And then all of a sudden you're on the streets. You never know what's going to happen. You know, there's no way to guarantee that you'll be safe. So despite working my ass off to, to get to a great school and to like have secure some kind of future for myself, even if I didn't know what would happen with my family, even in college, I was like, oh shit, they're paying for this. They're paying for this. They're paying for this. What am I going to (laughs) do? I better not say anything. Just get through this and get a fucking job. And just do it. Get a good job so that I can pay for stuff myself and not worry that um, my choices will make me live on the, make me have to live on the streets. And like somehow it, it was fine, but you know, not, not everyone is that lucky that they can just get through it and kind of find a, find a career that, that, that works for them and make money and climb. So that's, that's a really, really, really common occurrence for, for young people for, in the LGBT community to even now, even today, which is years later, to find themselves just completely lacking any kind of safety net, completely lacking any kind of security or stability or, or even knowledge of what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day. And it is like the most, um, it's like PTSD, except it's take off the P, right? There's no post because it's, it's happening yeah. to you every day. It's traumatic stress disorder that you're living every day. You're like, what if it spills out one day? What if it spills out today? What if it spills out today? What if it spills out today? And you're just waiting for something to fall over. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you as you were talking, I was I was just thinking through people I know, and I'm, I'm you know this is obviously for you this experience of not knowing is over a very long time, and uh, it must have been hard to breathe at times. I I could imagine this sense of this sense of panic every now and then, as an opposite to you really trying to start to express yourself in the world through how you dress and how you talk and trying to find people you can relate to, but still just having that kind of, that panic, that, uh, the stress that you're talking about. And, you know, did, did, did you go to therapy around then? Did like, how, how do you navigate that? Is it just through peer group? Is it through just putting your head down and disappearing into study? Uh, for me, I didn't, I have never gone to therapy. I probably should. Cause that sounds like really, uh, helpful and it's been helpful. It's helpful to a lot of people. I've never done it. I would love to. There's no reason I haven't. I just am bad at putting time for myself in that sort of, in that sort of way. But, but in college and, and through high school, like the way that I dealt with it was just keep pushing forward to, to find that security so that to find that security, you know, they call that, that phrase, fuck you money. Like you have the money to be able mm. to quit and just do whatever you want. That's the, yeah. I, without knowing that, I, that idea or phrase, because I wasn't in corporate world yet, but that was what I was chasing. And so it was, it wasn't like so much put your head down and just study. It was like, enjoy and express and be, but just don't just go to like, get to the get to the border of it, like get to the border of it so that no one can ever say for sure, but you're never hiding any part of yourself because that was not acceptable. That was not acceptable to me to do. Yeah, interesting. All right, let's um, let's jump into advertising. And I'm thinking, you know, every now and then I catch up with people who've got a, a brain like yours, you know, an, an amazing educational background, a lot of achievement, and then they want to work in advertising because partly to do with I think with what you said. I just I want to do something where I don't get bored. And uh, honestly, the the thing I get nervous about for anyone who's got that kind of uh, big brain is like you're not going to be able to use all of it in advertising although if you are creative it's one of the few industries where you will be able to use it so it's a weird riddle there so tell us about you know your early years in the industry where did you start what were you doing how did you feel about it all yeah so right after college i went to vcu brand center which is a grad program um it's like ad school but it's much more intense I mean, it's all ad schools are intense, but it's fairly intense. It's two years, it's a full-time program, it's a master's program, and it's all the way in Richmond, Virginia. So I did that for two years and graduated from that. That was an amazing experience because I, and my friends didn't know this at the time when I was there, but as soon as I landed, as soon as I got to Richmond, Virginia, all the way across the country, all I had was like two suitcases, one of them with like pillows and blankets and one with my clothes and like six boxes were getting shipped over um, through FedEx through my uncle's FedEx account with a discount. And so um, I was there and like, I just pretended I had been out for my whole life. When I got to Richmond, like and grad school started, I just pretended that I'd been out like always. I just pretended and I was like, I'm just going to be this person, do it. And I did. So that two years was really amazing. It was super fun, made lots of good friends, like lifelong, lifelong connections with people. And that feeling of being open was super liberating. And I took that... I think I took that energy with me as I like jumped into agency life. The first job I got, well, what the internship I got as a freelancer or intern in between the two years was with David and Goliath in Los Angeles. And that was just, it was a really cool experience. I mean, boutique agency, um, interesting characters, interesting founder, David Angelo, and had like this, like this being out and being open feeling coincided with being in the most 
progressive and open and interesting and creative environments, right? It was a grad school that's all about this and it's totally creative and totally pushing boundaries. And then it was internship at this super cool LA agency that is stylish and interesting and it's like the best of what I can offer the world and something I can strive toward. After that, I finished the program and then went to TBWA Los Angeles, which is another very, very creative agency that, you know, of course has ups and downs, but it's always been creative. It's always had a strong spirit. And, uh, and I remember during grad schools when I started doing drag, right? Sort of like just playing around with it for Halloween and, and whatever, and a couple of shows here and there. When I interviewed for TBWA, I had just come off of this, um, like just this, this dumb amateur competition. And you win by, of course, bringing the most friends and they all cheer for you, whatever, right? So I talked about, um, in my interview with TBWA, I talked about how um, disruption, I used disruption in my drag in that amateur night to be like, okay, the other queens are gonna do this, this, and this. They're gonna do Whitney, Britney Spears. They're going to do these kind of numbers. I'm going to do this Bollywood song. I'm going to be different and I'm going to be different styled. I'm going to be different this. And even though I looked like horrible, it was a fun performance and, and all my friends came and it was amazing. Um, and it was different than everybody else. And I won that. So I talked about how I used disruption, at least the basis of it, because I had not been working at TBWA yet. I didn't understand the full depth of the disruption process, but I was like, I use disruption to do this. And I think that's why I believe in the philosophy. It's just, it's as simple as thinking about what it is that's in the world and how you're going to do not that. It's just, it's very yeah. easy. It's not that complicated. And so just on that. So you talked about your drag queen experience through the job interview process. Yeah. 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 And that's why I got that job offer. They didn't even look uh, at my, my work from grad school. They were just like, okay, that person. <laughs> how long, how long ago is this? This was 2011. Okay. Oh, so I'm so happy to hear this because every now and then I'll, I'll, someone will ask me to look at a CV and I'm, I might know that they're, you know, they're into things in life and I'm not feeling the energy in their CV, their portfolio, the way they're putting themselves out there for work. And I'm like, you know, the thing that you're really into in the rest of your life, use that energy in your work, in your CV, in, in chasing jobs. Because here's the thing, if a company doesn't want to hire you because of it, then they're not your company. And if a company hires you not knowing it, you're going to feel super repressed. So you might mm -hmm. as well let it out there. So uh, I, I love hearing that you were front footed about it and you got the job because of who you are. Like that's a lot of people are very nervous about putting who they are into that job interview process. Were you like, why were you so confident about doing it? I think because the program was, VCO was so strong and they positioned us in a way that the industry was dying to hire us. And because of all the work we'd put in and because of the rigor and because of the reality of the projects we worked on. So there was a confidence in having, in being, in being excellent and having been excellent because of the program. So when we do our recruiting session, like we sit at our table, we set up a table and recruiters line up to talk to us. That's how that program works. It's not like a normal recruiting session at the end of your program where you go and try to talk to agencies. Agencies come and chase us down. So I knew we had options. And I was like, let them self-select because if they don't like my purple resume with the jewel at the bottom corner, I had like 75 copies of my resume with a jewel at the corner, glued to the corner of each one. And they, were, they, were, they had fragrance on them, like my signature perfume on them all. Um, if they didn't like that, then... There were plenty of other options and whoever was right for me would pick me. Um, and, I, and it was also about differentiating yourself from everyone else. I mean, there's going to be someone who likes that flavor. 
Yeah, yeah. Let them self-select. I think that's a good motto. It takes confidence that, you know, Jeannie, I think there are a lot, I don't know if you've counseled many people who've been nervous and asked you, because I'm sure to a lot of people, you're this, you know, bright shining star and they're like, oh, how do I, how do I get that? How do I have so much confidence in putting myself into the world like that? Like, it's not easy for a lot of people. Yeah, I think, I think it can be tough if you, it can be tough and it is tough. And it's just like, it's never going to feel easy no matter how, how, how far you get. It's never going to feel easy. But I think it is about being kind of stupid about it and just turning off the part of your brain that says, is this going to work or not? And just being a little bit dumb about going into it. Like, what else can you do? This is who you are. Turn off the, the analytical part. Don't worry about what people are going to say. And, and to remember that, you know, you're not for everybody. None of us are for everybody. Nobody is universally liked or appreciated or loved. I think this is, goes back to the family thing. It's like I had been preparing for years to be completely cut off. And I wasn't, but I was preparing for it mentally. So I, I have always gone into things being ready to just burn it all down. Like, if you don't like it, then you are out. Like, that was what it was. It, that's how it's always been. And mm. I think that it's in probably an unhealthy way of doing it, but that is what allowed me to do it. Mm. I know you were playing a role there, but do you actually, do you treat people like that, that they're out? No. I mean, it's like, it's, again, it's back to self-selection, right? If it's like, if you don't like it, then this is who it is. This is who I am. So mm. usually it's like they either are into me or not. And this is at varying levels, right? Because someone can be very different from you and they can be a good, good acquaintance and that's enough. You know, you don't have to be best friends. Mm. But it was like for employers and for where my home professionally, my home would be, if they're not into it, then they've chosen to opt out, you know? So then that's fine. You know, it wasn't like, it was never like, um, I'm throwing you out. It's just like, you've chosen not to be part of the genie experience. <laughs> All right. So powerful brain, copywriter, good education, lands in a few advertising jobs. What were the first few years like for you? Were they fulfilling? Did you nail it? Did you struggle? I think I struggled because I started out as a planner, right? So at VCU, I studied strategy and I was a planner at, um, at David and Goliath and TBWA, which was cool in so many ways. And I love so many parts of that role. But very early on, I felt distant from what we were actually creating. And I think that like, not to be overly philosophical about it, but you know, when I talked about like, getting into mass communications or whatever, because you don't get bored and there's always something new. That is part of it. That's like the surface level. But I think if I were drunk and on other substances and we were talking about this topic, I might say something ridiculous. Like I'm in this industry because when you make something and the world sees it, you feel like you're connected to other people. And it makes you not feel like you're completely alone or that this universe isn't just some alternate reality something like fictitious sphere and you're just this i don't know brain in it brain and spine that's in there and when you make something that people see in mass media whether it's a television show a movie a song or an ad campaign that's really interesting um you do feel uh, you feel connected with people and i think that's why like language and knowing language is important too and why why we strive to like you know feel like my grandmother Oh, didn't speak much English. She spoke Sindhi, which is like my family's dialect. And I always continued speaking it with her because if I couldn't speak Sindhi with her, 
then we weren't in the same world. We weren't in the same place because we weren't connecting in some way. And I think that advertising and brand communication, anything that's for a mass audience that you can connect with people is a way to feel connected. And I think that is like being a planner kept me too far away from it, from my own taste. And because I, maybe I wasn't successful in getting my thoughts through to inspire the creatives to reach the rest of the world at that early stage in my career. And so very quickly, I like threw the brakes down and I was like, listen, I'm going to switch to creative because I want to be right up there, my face against the glass, you know, with, with, with people. And uh, like, twin, like kind of dovetailing with that was doing more and more and more drag and kind of caring about feeling what it's like in front of an audience. And I didn't realize that the two were connected back then. And later on, I realized that they were kind of searching for the same thing, which is to realize that you are not alone and you're connecting. You've put something out and the world is seeing it. And now you feel like you're not alone. Yeah, I, I think that sentence you said, being a planner kept me too far away from it, too far away from the sense of making, from the sense of connection. I, I think that's something that a lot of planners can feel. They're not sure if they're allowed to feel it. And then if they feel it for a long time, it can lead to frustration because the challenge with a thought like that is that you need to take responsibility for it and do something different with it, which can mean a real shift in identity and a real shift in peer group and how you exist in the world and how you earn money and what status means. And so I worry for a lot of people who think, think, think for a living and whose thinking needs to affect other people's thinking to affect other people's thinking to affect other people's thinking that they can be very distant from the thing that probably they need to do at some point. How did you navigate from being a planner into being a copywriter? I started... I just started making my book. I just started making a fake, like a book of fake ads and stuff, campaigns. It wasn't just like print or whatever, but it was a bunch of different things. And I started showing it to people at work. I started volunteering, like when I was on pitches um, as a you know junior planner. It's a big enough, it's huge, huge agency, right? So you when you get on stuff, people don't always have visibility about what you're doing. So I was on pitches, and I. At that time, you know, there were, there were things happening in digital, social, non-traditional, but a lot of the best teams at TVWA were, were like very traditional minded. So it was TVC or film, whatever. And uh, the, the CDs and GCDs needed help to come up with the other stuff that, that needed to happen, digital, social stuff. So I started coming up with these random things as a planner. So it was inoffensive to anyone because it was stuff that the main creatives didn't really want to work on. They didn't give a shit about that. So, and you know, now things are different, but back then, which was not that long ago, it was, uh, it was a chance for me to kind of start doing it. And through that, I was like, I, that's when the realization happened. And I was like, okay, I like this. I, people are valuing it. Maybe this is my shot. Then I started making the fake you know, book stuff, started getting, projects. I started getting assigned to projects as a creative, as a non-traditional creative. Um, I worked with one creative director, Xanthi, uh, Xanthi Hohalek, Xanthi Wells. Um, so she's at Google now as an ECD there. And uh, we worked together at TBWA and she was like one of the first CDs to give me a chance to work on something. And she, asked, she let me be officially on the briefing as a creative. And then my boss in planning, who uh, was great, always supportive of everything I wanted to do, didn't know that I was trying to make the switch. He would see me in briefings and meetings and reviews and ask me what I was up to. And I would just lie and say it was a young blood thing. <laughs> I would just lie and say it was like a, it's a young planners meeting thing. 
it's such a big office too. Like there's no, there's no way anyone would know. You could just make up whatever you're doing. So I would do that work in the middle of the night <laughs> and then do my planning work on infinity in the day. And right. it was like two lives. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. I, I feel like this is one of those interviews I'm going to send to anybody who asks me about how to get into the industry. There's, there's like 50 things that they could take from all the things that you've done. Uh, I don't usually recommend people to lie, but you know, that I don't have to now. I can just tell you to do it because the point is that you were working. You were doing the extra hours and putting the yards in and uh, doing the extra hours, complicated idea because sometimes you have to put in the extra hours to improve and to get good. But some companies will uh, allow you to do those extra hours and it can feel a little bit of abusive. So some of these ideas, there's like a positive and a not so positive situation to it. But the main thing is that you feel okay about it while doing it, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I used what I needed to use to get what I needed to get. So for sure, I was putting extra hours in the, and, you know, Shiat was benefiting from it. But they were also letting me flex my muscles and try something and it was to their benefit. So, I mean, we get paid, no matter what job you're doing in the industry, you're getting paid to do something, you know? Now it's up to you and up to, I guess, how you can maneuver in the environment to make it useful to you. Or if it's just something that's transactional, you, they do, you do the work, you get paid, done. But if you can make it more valuable than that, then you're getting more out of them than they're sucking out of you. And, and you do have a competitive streak. You mentioned that earlier, and I think that competitive streak has come to to life in various parts of your life. Where, where does that competitiveness come from? I don't know. I think I just like feeling better than everyone else. That just is what it is. Who doesn't? We all want to be special, you know, like no matter how open you are about it, like we want to feel, human beings want to feel amazing. We want to feel like we are kings and queens. And I think that's just whether you admit it or not, or you let it kind of drive you or not. I think it's just a very universal thing. For me, it was like, again, I don't know, there's something addictive about climbing. Maybe it's the, the chasing of happiness, you know? Like, that's a very human thing, too. Like, we chase it, and then we get the thing we wanted, and then we suddenly want another thing. And I've always been aware of that, that that, that itself is what happiness is, to be, like, on the chase for the next thing. And I think a lot of different people experience it in different ways. Um, and the saddest thing is, like, not knowing what the next thing you're going to chase is and not being able to chase it because you don't know what it is. And that's so sad to me. I don't like that feeling. I don't want anyone to have that feeling. What, what does a self-described drag queen superstar need to chase once they're a superstar? I mean, haven't you achieved all the things of superstardom? What's next? Oh my goodness. There's always more superstardom to come. Uh, <laughs> well, I was, so, so I was already on, I was on a TV show, Drag Race Thailand. It's a Thai version like the Thai spinoff of Drag Race. It's the first international like franchise of Drag Race, of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. And that was last year I was on the show. So I was on mm. it for filming for three months and I got, you know, fairly far into the show. I was really proud of what I did, despite being like the weird kooky queen. Even in that environment, I was like, I'm going to be different than everybody else. And mm. different is better. And so I would do things like look around the room and see what everyone else is doing and try to do the opposite of that. Like I would try to do it to my detriment sometimes, but it was, um, that's, that's how that experience was. Next goals for me for, for drag are to, you know, maybe to be on even bigger shows and to, to do more things and to find more, more opportunities to be um, in front of the camera to further my profile. And uh, again, I, like sometimes it's confusing in my mind about what I'm trying to do with that. Sometimes it's like, how many followers do I have? How many, does that matter? What's important about, does this, does A lead to B lead to C? 
what part of it is crucial. But what I realize, what I come back to each time is that there is not much else in the world that is like that feeling of thrilling an audience, whether it's through the glamour or through the fear, because a lot of my looks are kind of creepy, or through the surprise. There's a reason the amazing drag queens do like stunts and splits and jumps and all kinds of nonsense, because it's, um, it's a spectacle and you feel you did this thing, whatever it is, in your flavor, right? Whether it's funny, you la- make people laugh or you make people cry, you make people feel something. Now all of a sudden you had an impact on them, you had an effect and it makes you feel like you have this superpower. So whatever bigger and bigger, bigger things I do, I'll always be searching for the next big thing. Even RuPaul is like hugely famous, of course, already, but she's not stopping anything. She's continuing forward with her season 12 is going to air soon of RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, Drag Race UK is there. Drag Race Canada, Australia starting soon. Um, she has a show on Netflix. She hosted SNL. Like that is, uh, that is a drag queen who can do, who can do shit and who's never stopping. Like there will no, mm. there'll be no stopping her until she's dead. And even in the grave, that tombstone is going to be beautiful. How, how is it to calibrate that feeling of spectacle to the day job? You know, are you ever in meetings and you're like, oh, I could be on a stage right now. Come on. <laughs> you know, is that, is that, is that, does that prove challenging for you? No. I mean, even in our industry, like it's work, but we do all kinds of stuff that's interesting. You know, we do all kinds of stuff that has a, has a gives you a chance to perform. I mean, being with, be, being with vice and virtue, there's a different approach to the work that I, that I really embrace. And, and it's, it feels very different to me. It feels liberating to me. So in other growing coming up through the other agencies, like, yes, you perform in meetings in a sense, and you get that sense of like drama, you know, and the performer side of you comes out. But when you're really scaring people a little bit or surprising people, and when you're able to do that with support behind you, with support under you, with support to the sides, that's even better. So it's like, it's like, it's like here in this environment, in this role, it feels like it's comparable to being on a stage and, and, and connecting with people because I and my teams, you know, the 20 plus creatives who work with me, work for me, work, work across these kind of eight offices in uh, Asia Pacific, they are performing every day too. And like, I can either be their dance mom from far away or like, you know, from the corner over here, or I can be the one on the stage itself, or I can be the one helping craft a story for how we're going to present this thing or what we're going to make for the world to see. And I, I don't feel like there's that much of a gap. It doesn't feel like there's that much missing because it's, it's, quite, it's quite entertaining if you let it be. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. Okay, last, last question. Which parts of yourself do you think that you've really been able to explore because of the advertising industry? I think for me, um, my showmanship um, and sparkle, right? I mean, these are the obvious things because it's drag. But for me as a, as a character, as, like a, as a person, it is important for me to like put on this persona and it's important for me to put on, put out these ideas that can surprise people a little bit or can make them feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit, um, a little bit like the more playful version of themselves. And that I think is where this industry still has a lot of room for us to do things that are enjoyable and to be the people we want to be, you know? I think it's like marketers, right? We're, we're getting money from these big brands to, to make something for them, right? 
we're getting money from them to make something cool, make something interesting. And if you just, if we, I, I get to lean into making something they haven't thought of before, making something that is interesting, making something that is something totally out of left field, or or at least proposing that to them. And I think like being in a creative role, a creative leadership role, and whether no matter what layer, what level, it's like. If you're in that position to be sitting in front of a room of people, standing in front of them, and bringing something new to them, that is when any person who's always felt left out, any person who's always felt like an outcast or a misfit, or any person who's always felt like part of them wasn't expressed, they have a chance to kind of sew that in to something that they're presenting to 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 these people. The whole point of it is to be different. The whole point of it is to be interesting. So where, where is a better environment than to bring your interesting, bring your weirdness, bring something that people didn't accept or whatever it is, and put it into the work itself? There's, no, there's not that many places where you can really do that. But advertising is about ideas and, and things that are going to be changing people's minds. So where else do you put it? You put it here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, you talked about making things and them connecting with the world and it makes you feel more connected to people. I mean, I, I feel that about these kinds of interviews that they're, they're very quiet. They're very intimate. You put them into the world. You don't know who's going to listen to them, where they're going to listen to them. But I can guarantee what you just talked about is going to affect a handful of people's lives in an extremely powerful way because there are a lot of people trying to get into the industry or try to progress through the industry and they don't get to hear this kind of message very often about exploring who you are and let them self-select because to do the opposite means you're going to repress yourself and that that doesn't end well. It, It doesn't happen well and it doesn't end well. So as much as you're a big spectacle on stage, I appreciate the lack of spectacle in this, in this conversation and it will change. I reckon it's going to affect a handful of people in a super powerful way. And I hope they reach out to you and, and acknowledge the wisdom that you've imparted today, Jeannie, where is the best place for people to find you on the internet? The best place for people to find me is on Instagram at wish for genie that's a w-i-s-h-f-o-r-g-e-n-i-e and if anyone does want to message me um you can message me there as well awesome all right i really appreciate you joining me today on sweathead genie it's been awesome to hear your story may you continue on to further superstardom may the superstardom never be enough but may the fact that it's never going to be enough not mess with your brain too much may you just keep performing for the sake of performing (laughs) on for sure thank you thank you for having me peace